It is February, and it is time once again for our annual special on reproduction called Ocean Lovin'. Before we get started, we want to warn everyone that this episode deals with mature subjects. Please listen to it in its entirety before sharing it with the younglings. With that out of the way, join us now for an all-new Ocean Ocean Science Science Radio. Welcome back to Ocean Science Radio, the podcast that brings you the latest, greatest, and sometimes deepest stories in the ocean. I am ocean and climate communications specialist, Andrew Kornblatt. And I am shark ecologist, aquanaut, and aspiring badass, Francis Farabaugh. Again, this is our Ocean Love and episode where we explore the weirdness and coolness in the reproductive strategies in the ocean. And today we're going to cover... Uh, hey, Andrew, is something missing? I th- think something might be missing. Wait, wait a minute, Francis. I feel a presence, one I have not felt since. Hey, everyone. Skylar, welcome back. It's great to be back, Andrew. Can you introduce yourself for the folks listening at home? Sure thing. I've been helping co-host Ocean Levin for many years now, and I'm a marine ecologist trained in invertebrate reproduction and a science communicator. I also happen to work in NOAA's Alaska Regional Office and the Habitat Conservation Division. So, what do we have on the docket today? Okay, so today we are going to talk about snow crab reproduction. You may have seen snow crabs popping up in the news recently. This is because back in October, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game canceled the snow crab season because the population, which normally numbered in the billions, fell by an estimated 90%, the first time the fishery was shot down in recorded history. As a result, we felt it was a good time to talk about snow crab reproduction and talk a bit about why the population dropped so far, or at least why scientists think the population has dropped so far. Without further ado, let's bring on Chris Long. Well, my name is uh, Chris Long. I'm a research ecologist with the National Marine Fisheries Service, and I'm stationed up in uh, Kodiak, Alaska. Are there any specific species that you specialize in? National Marine Fisheries Service, you know, our primary mandate from Congress is to manage the protected resources in federal waters. State waters typically go out to about three nautical miles offshore, and then the exclusive economic zone of the United States goes off to 200 nautical miles offshore. So anything between those three and the 200 nautical mile is federal, not state. Up here in Alaska, we bring in about 40% of the seafood of the nation up here. We've got uh, five different crab species which are in the EEZ that are federally managed. So those are three colors of king crabs, red, blues, and golden king crab, and then two kinocetes. Those are the snow crab and the tanner crab. And typically both of those are marketed under the name snow crab, although they are separate species. One of the things Chris specifically studies is acidification and what effect it has on crab populations. As we mentioned, snow crabs have been hit hard in population decline in recent years, so hard that fisheries were ordered closed, impacting crab prices significantly. So Chris, can you tell us about this die-off? Why do we think this is happening? We have to go back a few years. Part of our job, part of my job every year is to go out and we do a survey of the population in Bering Sea. So that's the Eastern Bering Sea Trawl Survey. It covers a massive area. It covers the entire Eastern Bering Sea shelf. We go from Bristol Bay. Now we go all the way up to the Bering Straits. 
It's something like a third of the area of the lower 48, the continuous states down there. I mean, it's a massive area that we're covering. Anyway, so every year between May and the end of August, we go out and basically do a, it's called a bottom trawl survey. So we take a, a big bottom tending net that goes down to the bottom. We haul it for a half hour, bring it back up on board and everything that's in there gets sorted to species, counted, measured, weighed, has biological samples taken, and then we then some repeat over and over again. And that's the major source of data from that because we get then estimates of how many crabs there are in the ocean. And this is also the major source of data for most of the groundfish species up there during C2. So cod and pollock and a lot of the flatfish, so yellowfin sole, rock sole, stuff like that. We do that every year. We've been doing it every year since 1975. And of course, COVID hit in 2020. Now, before that, in 17, 18, 19, we had this massive, call it recruitment pulse, but that's a fancy word for saying there are lots of young crabs in the system. They weren't big enough to be caught by the fishery yet, but you can kind of watch this size class of crabs kind of slowly growing up in the population. I, I remember being out on the survey in 2018, and you'd get the net that would come up, and it would just be like haystacks of crab on the table just big mounds of crab, and I would spend all day shuttling baskets of crab to the scale, weighing them and getting them off the boat because we had sort everything into these big bushel-sized baskets, and then we weigh them and process them. But we didn't have enough baskets on the boat to fit all the crabs in. So we had to kind of do a progressive thing where you, you'd sort a bunch of the crabs, i get them off and just be shuttling them kind of continuously during the whole processing of the catch. According to Chris... 2009 had similar results, with the survey teams finding lots of small crabs out there. And the thought was that there is going to be a massive fishery from these crabs as they got older in 2020, 2021, and beyond. Then 2020 hit and COVID hit. We ended up skipping for the first time in, you know, since 75 survey. And that's simply because that was early in the pandemic, if you remember. And we were in such a remote place that you know, our risk tolerance was just low. You know, you have one person who gets it coming on the boat, but doesn't realize they have it. And then you're three days from getting them to port and who knows how long getting them to an actual hospital because, you know, maybe the flights aren't getting in. That happens all the time up here. So Chris and his team had to cancel the 2020 survey out of safety and missed a full year of data. When they got back out there in 2021, they were in for a shock. And then we go out in 2021 and we survey the population. And I want to say all of those crabs died. Most of them died. Most of that huge population density died. So what what happened to them is the question. I'm actually headed up to Kodiak to visit Chris's lab for a work trip next month. One thing that is super relevant here is that through sampling and measuring, we know that 2019 was one of the warmest years on record for the Bering Sea really high bottom temperatures that almost certainly persisted up through 2020. Chris explains why this is important. Snow crab in Bering Sea are at the lower end of their thermal range. The population that we're harvesting is already kind of at the the warmest they can stand. They're not moving any farther south than that. So as temperatures went up, those higher temperatures on the bottom are almost certainly what drove the decline we had in the stock. At the beginning, so, you know, temperatures go up. Uh, there's a number of things that could happen. And the big debate in 2021, after we got the survey results back and there weren't any crab left, 
was, okay, did they die or did they move? In one of our last episodes, we covered the California current and how the changes in temperature will cause species to migrate to areas that are more suitable for them. In the case of snow crabs, where would their exodus be? Yeah, there's two places they could move. One is they could move over into Russian waters up on the northern Bering Sea shelf, or they could walk off the edge. So the Bering Sea shelf, it goes down to about 200 meters, and it's just gradual slope down from land to 200 meters that happens over hundreds of miles. And then there's what we call the slope, and it, that drops down from 200 meters to about 4,000 meters, over a very, very short distance there. And our survey goes out to 200 meters. As you get deeper, it often gets colder. So one of the, one of the questions was, okay, did those crab walk off the shelf and go down into colder waters where we can't see them? So 2021, we didn't have a good answer to that question. There are a few reasons why that answer was hard to come by. First of all, it's hard to distinguish between a crab that dies and a crab that moves someplace else. Also, if they did die, what killed them? Was it thermal stress where they just got too hot and died, or was it for other reasons? Was it that now that you've got warmer waters, now predators can start to move up from the south, start taking advantage of all this biomass? So cod in particular, we know cod love to eat snow crab. We know cod had moved north and overlapped with them a lot more, so that's another potential. The going theory right now is basically that they starve. And so what happened is you have this. The crabs are moving north a little bit to get away from these warm waters. But you've got massive numbers of crabs underneath there, like one of the highest population densities Chris and his team has ever seen. So they're all crammed, all these crabs, into a tiny, tiny space. At the same time, you're increasing the temperature. As you increase the temperature, the metabolic rate of those animals goes up. They're burning energy faster because the water is warmer. And that's all well and good up to a point. Because, of course, as an organism, you're burning energy faster. You have to take in more energy by eating. And so now you've got a huge density of crabs in a relatively small area. They're all using energy faster, and there's just not enough food to support them in there. And so the, the going theory is they basically all starve to death in the northern Bering Sea. That's the most likely thing. There were likely other things that added to it as well. Certainly predation probably was a part of the story. Certainly, there was some indication that there was increase in disease prevalence up there, which is something that you expect if you have a bunch of animals that are physiologically stressed and they're at high densities, then that makes them more vulnerable to disease. But likely the primary cause of this was starvation. And we don't think they moved simply because they didn't come back. So temperatures dropped down in, in 2022 and 2023. And if they had gone off onto the slope, they almost certainly would have moved back onto the shelf as the temperatures changed back to what they liked. And we didn't see any of those crab come back. They basically died, probably starvation. And of course, not going out in 2020, that's part of the story too, because we didn't have eyes on the ground for that year. That was a year when all of this stuff was happening as far as the mortality of the crabs. And so that's a big gap in our ability to say with any degree of certainty what exactly happened. Got it. So let's get to the point of this episode. What is the reproductive cycle of snow crabs and what makes it so unique? Yeah, so they are interesting in a number of ways. So snow crab, when a female hits what we call her pubescent molt, so that's her molt to maturity, where she goes from being an immature to a mature female, 
that uh, molt usually happens in January, February. So it's an early one in the calendar year anyway. And during that molt, she'll hopefully find a male who will do what's called a pre-copulatory embrace. And that's just a fancy word for the male grabs her by her claws and holds on to her. There's two main reasons that the male does that. One is he's claiming her. So this is, this is my female, don't come grab her. But he's also protecting her because, especially for larger crab, when they molt, that's when they're most vulnerable to predation. Humans are squishy on the outside and have hard bones supporting those squishy bits internally. We are also continuously growing. Same thing with fish. Unlike us, crabs have an exoskeleton and the squishy bits are inside of a hard shell. A crab's shell doesn't expand, so in order to grow, a crab molts. Once they wriggle out of that hard shell, the new skin is soft and rubbery. At that point, they absorb a lot of water. They expand and grow, and then they harden up that outer shell. But that time in between when they're soft, they're very vulnerable to predation. And much like the lobsters we covered in a previous Ocean Loving episode, the male crab cuddles or holds on to the female and acts as a guardian. The male being there and holding on to the female while she's in that pre-molt stage and keeping, basically guarding her while she's in the post-molt stage, it helps to protect her from predators during that phase. So he's protecting his woman there, protecting his reproductive investment, if you want a, a better term for that. After she's done molting, then they will mate. Snow crab or brachyurian crabs, most of those have the ability to store sperm inside of them. They have uh, specialized organs called spermatheci, and the male puts the sperm into there. And then the uh, oocytes, which are coming out of the female's ovary, get internally fertilized before they get deposited under the abdominal flap of the female on there. In the lab, scientists observe that once crabs mate, the male will release his hold on the female, and the female will mate again up to three or four times, sometimes with the same male and sometimes with other males. Storing a lot of crab sperm. Females can store sperm to use at a later time for reproduction. So you may be asking yourself, why would a snow crab female even wait to reproduce? The, the first time reproductive females, they always need a male to milk when they're molting and in order to mate before they put out the eggs. And that's going to be the first time they ever mate. And it could be the last time they mate. Um, and that's because they have the spermatheci and they can store the sperm. You know, the first time uh, when, when she molts to maturity and extrudes her first batch of eggs, she uses some of the sperm that she gets from the male immediately for that first clutch of eggs. But then from the female perspective, she's going to move off and brood her eggs. And it's going to be a year, at least a year before she's ready to extrude a new batch. Maybe she finds another male, you know, when she's ready to do that next clutch of eggs, and maybe she doesn't. So the sperm can act as kind of a, a backup insurance policy to make sure that she can extrude that new batch of eggs. Snow crab, we know that the sperm is still good a year, you know, for that second clutch of eggs, so a year after that mating. With tanner crab, we know they're good for at least two years from laboratory experiments that, that have been done. Probably the same in snow crab. I, I think it's just that nobody's held them for that long in the lab to confirm that. In tanner crab, at least, after about two years, that third clutch of eggs, it seems like the, the sperm aren't, aren't, either she's run out or the sperm gotten old and, and aren't as effective at fertilizing eggs at that point. 
So anyway, that's one of the reasons, kind of a backup policy, make sure that you maximize your reproductive output as a female, have as many babies as you can. And one of the other theories, it's not been proven, but mating can actually, for a female crab, can be a little risky. And that's because the males are substantially larger than the females. Females are usually in Bering Sea between about 40 and 60 millimeters in their carapace width. And the males that are mating with them are more like 60 to 120 millimeters in carapace width. So, you know, much, much bigger than they are. And the males will, they guard the females, obviously, but they'll also fight over the females. And these fights can get pretty rough. If the ratio of males to females is high in a particular area, then the big males are fighting each other over dating options. The female crabs can also end up being collateral damage, as a female can lose limbs while the males are basically playing tug-of-war. And if you've got enough sperm from your first mate to fertilize basically all the eggs you're ever going to produce in your lifetime, then you don't have to find another mate. You don't have to risk males fighting over you and deal with all that hassle. You can just fertilize that second set of eggs internally with what you have left over from your first mating and you're good to go. So that's another reason that they might want to go that route. Okay, but why the one-year or two-year detail? I need more specifics about their reproductive cycle. These guys are living up in cold waters, usually between about, you know, negative two and three degrees Celsius, just below and just above freezing. They're slow developers. And there's two different reproductive cycles that they can go through. There's an annual and a biennial cycle. And that all depends on temperature. So the, the big thing you have to understand is that the larvae have to be released at a certain time of the year. They have to be released in the spring because that's when we see a spring bloom of phytoplankton. As the sun, uh, daylight gets longer and the water starts to warm up, everything kind of, you know, bumps up towards the biological activity in the, the ocean. This is the, I guess, the oceanic uh, equivalent of all the leaves coming out and the grass getting green on land. Larvae, like most things, need food. If they were released in the middle of winter when there's no food in the water column, then they would all just starve. So they need to be released during the time period when there's lots of food in the water. That puts a fairly tight constraint on the timing of hatching for these crab larvae to survive. Because these females are mating in the winter to early spring, the females can either hold onto those embryos for one year until about March-ish, which is when they start to hatch, or the females can decide to skip it and go for a full two years. What's driving that is temperature. It's always, always, always about temperature. As you start getting below zero degrees into that negative one, negative two territory, the embryos are just developing so slowly that they can't develop all the way to get to full hatching size in that first year. And so they end up skipping a year and going all the way to the second year. In Bering Sea, in the U.S. population, most of the crabs seem to be on the annual cycle, though. It's, we're on the southern end of the snow crab's thermal tolerance range essentially. And so most of the crabs up in our waters are, at least in the Bering Sea anyway, are on an annual cycle. So those females brood them for a year, those eggs are held underneath the abdominal flap, and in the spring they release and the larvae go up into the water column. Can you describe these larvae? Right now I'm just imagining adorable itty-bitty crablings dancing in the water column. 
the larvae don't look anything like crabs. They're tiny, they're about a millimeter. So what, that's uh, about one thirty-second of an inch long. And they look more like little shrimp than they do like little crabs. And they're planktonic, so they swim up in the water column. They can move vertically through there. They spend probably about two to three months in the water column. They go through a couple of larval stages before they hit what's known as megalope stage. And megalope stage looks kind of crab-like. They still have a tail, but they've got claws. They're more crab-like, and it's known as a settling stage. Um, and at that point, the baby crab is looking for good habitat to settle into, which in the case of snow crab is kind of nice, muddy, sandy bottom. They'll settle down there, and they'll molt into the first crab stage. So that's the first true crab stage. At that point, they look like tiny little baby crabs. And at that point, they can't swim anymore, and they're on the bottom for the rest of their life. And then in Alaska, probably somewhere in the range of five to six years before they hit reproductive maturity, and the cycle starts over again. Can we focus a little bit more on the females and how they carry their egg clutches? And can you talk a little bit more about the brooding period? When I talk about the brooding period, that's the amount of time she's basically sitting on her eggs. So the abdominal flap in lobsters and in shrimp, for example, you've got the tail, which is the part that we like to eat. That's really the abdominal part of the animal. And in crabs, you know, that has changed and, and they've evolved so that that's folded up underneath their bodies. And so if you flip a crab over, you'll see there's a bit that you can kind of pull up and look underneath. And that's the abdominal flap. Both males and females have them. And it's the primary way you can tell the difference between the sexes and crabs is they're very differently shaped. Generally, the males are kind of more triangular shape and the females are, are a broad oval. So for the females, underneath that broad oval, there's a, a bunch of little appendages called pleopods. I, I don't think they've got a, a non-sciencey name, they're just pleopods. But those kind of have long hair-like structures on them that the eggs will attach to. When you get a mature female and flip her over, that abdominal flap will be bulging. And if you lift it up, you'll see the eggs underneath attached to them. And they're about a millimeter or so in diameter, so very small, a little bit less than that. They're just underneath there. The female takes care of them. She cleans them, brushing them off with appendages, and then also she aerates them. The growing fertilized eggs are using up oxygen to continue to survive and develop. Unlike mammals, where they've got a direct connection to the mother's circulatory system so they can get all those nutrients and like oxygen, uh, the eggs are separate from the female. She'll open up that flap and circulate water with her legs into those eggs so they get enough air. So the, the eggs are internally fertilized and then they come out and are attached underneath that abdomen. That is either for one year in warmer waters or two years in colder waters. Holding a clutch of eggs for two years, is that like a lot? That's a lot of time for crabs. You know, I, I started off in Chesapeake Bay looking at blue crabs, Kalanicki sapidus down there, and it's like three weeks for blue crabs down there in, when it's warmer outside. Much, much shorter um, brooding duration. You know, all of these things, it's all dependent on, it's it's a temperature thing, really, as to how long these things take. Most of the crabs up our way, all the king crabs, so red and blue king crabs both take a year between extrusion and hatching. Golden king crabs are, they're a little bit different. They're about 450 days between extrusion and hatching. 
Yeah, up here everything is cold and it takes a long time. That's that's essentially it. They're they're cold-blooded animals, so ectotherms, and so their body is at the same temperature as the environment that they're in. For cold-blooded animals, the you know basically the warmer it is, the higher their metabolic rate, the faster they can grow, all those types of things. If if you've you know seen reptiles, for example, or probably something that more folks are familiar with. You know, it's a cold day, and, and if you find a snake on a cold day, it's going to be really sluggish and not moving quickly. And if it's a warm day, it's going to be, you know, a lot more active. And that's just because it's warmer and they can metabolize quicker. All the chemical reactions inside their body are happening faster as the temperature goes up. All right. So how do we know what we know about snow crab reproduction? Has their reproduction been observed in the wild or mainly in captivity? So a lot of the observations have been done in the lab. The reason for that is that during the time period when they're molting and mating and all of that, that's you know, January, February, March, that's the worst time to be out in the field. And this is also taking place you know, at 100 meters depth. And a lot of this territory in Bering Sea is going to be under sea ice anyway during that time period. So very difficult to make observations in the field. And so most of the experiments that have been done have been in the laboratory. And a lot of the stuff that I've told you already has been stuff that we've learned because we've observed them in the laboratory. You know, questions like, okay, how many times does a female mate um, in a given year? How much sperm does an individual male give each female at a particular mating? And does that change with how many males are around, how many females are are around? How many females can a, a male successfully mate with before he essentially shooting blanks? before he runs out of sperm, that sort of stuff. So all of that has been in laboratory experiments, basically, where where you take crabs from the wild, put them in tanks, and then watch them and see what they do. Some crab species have massive gatherings or aggregations during the breeding season. Some are in smaller groups, others are loners. What about snow crabs? We don't know for sure. And again, that's just because they're happening at times and places that it's extraordinarily difficult to go out and observe them. We haven't checked in Bering Sea, but we do know that at least around here, that's something they do. And this is happening at like 120 meters depth. So they're deep under the water. They've only been seen with kind of remotely operated vehicles and cameras and stuff like that. In other words, to really know more, we need way more ROVs and cameras down there in the deep so we can perv on the species that live down there and learn more. We have a whole section of our lab that is the the crab porn section is what I call it. It's all these old VHS observations of king crab mating in the laboratory. So anyway. (laughs) You heard that right. Crab porn library. As exciting as that is, let's talk about why this species is so important. There are four major fisheries that pull snow crabs. On either side of the Bering Sea, you have the American and Japanese fisheries. The Canadians have a fishery in the Gulf of St. Lawrence in the Atlantic. And there is an introduced population in the Barents Sea that the Norwegians and Russians harvest. The crabs are rather valuable, pulling around $4 a pound at the dockside. When you compare that to Pacific Cod, which is running about 40 cents per pound, that's quite a difference. So these guys are, you know, almost 10 times more valuable than a lot of the fish species up here as far as that goes. There's there's a lot of money that gets made and people, uh, everybody likes to eat crab just about, unless you're allergic to them. And uh, 
very few people feel bad about eating crab is probably it too because they look like giant undersea spiders so it's it's hard for people to empathize with them and they're ridiculously tasty too so that's a big thing so valuable you know just because we like to eat them from an ecological point of view these crusty crustaceans are a pretty important predator in the deep areas of the ocean they live Back to Chris. They can be what's known as a biomass dominant. So there's just, you know, if you were to take everything that was in the benthic community, sorry, benthic is a fancy word that just means on or in the bottom of the ocean, as opposed to pelagic communities, which would be in the water column swimming around. So it's, these are the bottom dwellers um, down there. In some places, they can be a biomass dominant, so that means they're a real driver of the system as far as energy flow and all of that. In Bering Sea, they're eaten some by Pacific cod, but not a huge amount. But as you get up north into the Chukchi and the Beaufort Sea, which are up in the Arctic Ocean, they're an important food source up there for things like walrus. And they're, of course, a very important predator down there as well. So they're feeding on things like polychaete worms, which are their annelids, kind of like earthworms. They're feeding on clams, basically anything they can get their claws on. Most crab are referred to as opportunistic omnivores, which is a fancy way of saying that if, if they can grab it and crush it with their claws and get it in their mouth, they'll eat it. But yeah, a lot of the stuff they're eating is things like that. Brittle stars would also be high on that list of things they're eating. So just an important big part of the ecosystem down there, a big driver of energy flow through the system. So this ecologically and economically important species is either dying, being eaten, or migrating to parts unknown. Their reproductive cycle can be one or two years, and a female can mate with just one or many partners. The sperm can be stored for up to two years, and so can the egg clutch. Seems like these crab ladies have a lot of options here. And Chris... Do you have any last words or takeaways for our audience at home? <laughs> Boy, a takeaway from an hour-long conversation that raged all over the place. I just hope people appreciate the uniqueness and diversity of, of what's out there in the wild. There, there's just so many cool critters out there. You know, I, I got into science mostly. I grew up in the Kalahari Desert and spent a lot of my time flipping over rocks and finding, you know, scorpions and other fun things and putting them in jars and seeing what happened and just appreciating the beauty and diversity of nature and how cool these animals are is, I think, is a big part of all of this. I think it's a big reason why you do it and why you, you have all of the different species that you go through for looking at their reproduction. I just think it's fascinating myself. I love learning about this stuff and reading about these things. And, you know, go out and find what's in your area and, you know, flip over a few rocks or trees or whatever and see what cool things you can find around your place. And there you have it, folks. Go flip over a few rocks, stick your head in the ocean, grab life by the weirdness, and learn all about the world we live in. And maybe invest in more RVs so we can learn more and explore all sorts of hidden ocean mysteries. And perv on the ocean critters living there. Big thank you to our guests. Big thank you to Skylar. Great to have you on again. And big thanks to you, our listeners. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with your network, your friends, and your whole crew. Until next time, this has been an all-new Ocean, Ocean Science, Science Radio. Radio. It is February, and it is time once again for our annual special on reproductive. On reproductive. That's all, folks. Beep, 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 beep.